The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. We've all heard the adage, do what you love. But what if you love more than one thing? Today's guest, Cal Penn, he loved political science and he also loved acting. You most likely know Cal from TV, shows like House or one of my very favorites, Designated Survivor. If you haven't caught that one, quick go catch up on it. Of course, if you're of a certain age and recreational disposition, you might remember him as Kumar in the Harold and Kumar movies. What you may not remember, or have ever even known, is that for several years, Cal put his extremely successful acting career on hold to answer a very different call. Cal went to Washington. Now Cal's written a book about his experiences. It's called You Can't Be Serious. Today on Hello Monday, we're going to hear that story. And beyond that, we'll learn what it is to have two extremely different career visions and what it is to make both of them work. A journey like this takes more than just determination and talent. That's table stakes. It requires an aspiration to belong, to make good and competitive spaces. It also needs passion for personal achievement and a personal commitment to the greater good. Cal has all of this in abundance. But Hollywood and Washington, well, they have really different cultures. Entertainment rewards stars. It prizes individualism. And government, well, that's about service to country. So I asked Cal how he got drawn to careers that seemed to me to be so opposite. Here's Cal. It is very interesting to hear you describe them that way. And I am always curious how how folks kind of posit that conversation. And I'll tell you why. For me, both of those things growing up, uh, entertainment or the idea of Hollywood and DC or the idea of, of governance and politics, to me, each seemed like its own monolith that was inaccessible to people who looked like me or, or were from families like mine. Um, and you could try to get as close as you wanted. Maybe you could be an intern. Maybe you could do something like that. But the idea that you had access to those spaces and that those spaces could belong to you was not something that I ever grew up thinking was necessarily possible. Honestly, that's part of the, part of the reason I decided to write this book was as the years went by, I, I was sort of having exactly this conversation in my head and, and realized, well, I guess I have had the opportunity to to enter two fields or two industries that we do tend to think of as monoliths. Um, and, and to your point, that some our perceptions of each, depending on who you talk to, can be a little bit different. Let's talk about how you broke in, per se, to each field, because as sure. you say, each field is is challenging from the outside. And where you grew up, I'm assuming, in New Jersey, it wasn't like a ton of people around you were like getting into television or joining the White House, right? Or am I wrong? I look back as an adult and kind of kind of think, wow, okay, it was an incredible privilege to have a public high school system that had a performing arts program, which is where I went, or honors programs in international studies and, and global studies, which I also had the chance to, to take advantage of. But the jump from being a, a nerdy 15-year-old with, with passions and leanings to to actually having the chance to work there. No, I, I didn't think that that was possible. I think the thing that that pushed me in that direction, acting-wise, I, I, I had a, a great acting teacher in high school. His name was Mr. Kazakoff. He still teaches at the same performing arts high school. I'm still in touch with him. A lot of people endeavor to pursue acting. A lot of people even go to UCLA and endeavor yeah. to pursue acting. 
And you did that with the extra challenge of not looking like anybody else who was <laughs> successful at doing it at the time. Yeah. What went right for you and what did you do to help things go right? I, I sort of knew that I wanted to study uh, theater, film, and television. I got into NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. I got into UCLA and then got rejected from a bunch of places also. And was kind of like, well, UCLA has the best combination of academics and the arts. And it's also in Los Angeles. So this is maybe my shot at trying to pursue all these things at the same time. And then when I, uh, when I moved to LA, I, I started going to as many guest lectures by professional artists as possible. You know, it was LA. So thankfully you'd have actors and directors and people sort of come in. And there was one particular woman who I, I have been, I've been searching for her name to figure out exactly who this was. But at the time, and it must have been the mid to late 90s, she was the only woman of color, possibly the only person of color on a network TV show. Saw her at an event and somebody asked her, how do you deal with casting and how do you make sure that you that, that you can do your best knowing that you'll probably get rejected? And she said, well, I'm a classically trained actor. She had a graduate degree in, in, in theater. And she said, the, the best I can do is walk into a room and they know when they look at what I am on paper and what I can do. They know that I'm one of the best people they're going to see. They just know that. That's undeniable. So when they choose not to hire me after that, that's on them. And so I thought like, wow, that's a that's both scathing and also just a, a really good outlook. I want to do that. And after I, just, after I realized like, yes, I want to do this, I kind of stopped and thought, wow, I feel like, okay, maybe that's the difference between whether I like this idea as a hobby versus no, I want to sacrifice like that. Like I want to do everything I can knowing that it might not still be good enough for a lot of people. And it wasn't good enough for, for plenty of people at the time. So Part of it was just making sure that I was as trained as I could be and as qualified as as I could be no matter what. And then the added part after that was definitely taking, you know, taking jobs that I didn't necessarily want to take or coming up with a screen name. Cal Penn is not my legal name. I never legally changed it either. Uh, but Kalpen Modi or Kalpen Modi, as uh, the anglicized pronunciation, is my, my real birth name. And so even just the idea of coming up with a screen name to be a little more palatable or to see if it was a little more catchy or, you know, you can never put your finger on exactly why that might uh, help or hurt. Cal, would you make that same decision now? I, I don't think you have to. And this is what's incredible. I was talking to um, Sheetal Sheth, who's a, an actor friend of mine, decided not to come up with a screen name and people encouraged her to. And I was talking to her last week and she said, you know, I'm confident that I didn't get certain jobs because of my name. And then you look at this next generation of actors. Um, I'm going to age myself a little bit here, um, but you know, folks are in their their 30s. You've got like Hassan Minhaj and, and Aziz Ansari and, and Nick Dodani and and all these guys who either never had to have that conversation or just decided vehemently, no, that's not for me. I'm not going to go ahead and, and come up with a screen name, which I really respect. And to me, that's a that's a really nice sign of progress, you know. Cal is really direct in this book about how much blatant racism he experienced and still experiences. He talks just as directly about sometimes choosing to say nothing, to play a long game. I wanted to know what it was like to have to make that decision. It's such an interesting thing to have the privilege of thinking about now in 2021. You said it accurately. I think you said the word blatant, you know, overt versus covert. Um, I think the world we live in now, at least business-wise, things are a little more covert. They're a little more whispered. But at the time, it was it was pretty much acknowledged just sort of straight on. I would go into an audition and I would have casting directors look at me, look at my headshot, 
and say, uh, you're Cal Penn? <laughs> I would go, yeah. And they would go, oh, well, we're just going to read like the first page of this 10-page scene. I'm like, oh, right. Knowing full well every other actor who happens to be very handsome, very white, you know, goes in there for 15 minutes. Uh, and there were two of them in the sessions before mine. So you kind of know what you're walking into. And you know that you don't have a, a fair shot. And then there were plenty of times when I would go in and, and read for bit parts on shows like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, for example, right? Really, you kind of think of them as wholesome kids shows. And I remember walking into one of those auditions and the casting director following me out and asking me, can you come back in and do it again, this time with a really thick Indian accent? And I would have to kind of think to myself, well, I mean, I prepared this character to be a kid in a study group who's from the Pacific Northwest and really likes Nirvana and small batch organic coffee. And uh, if I say no, I know I'm not going to get this job. If I say yes, the job pays, you know, 600 bucks. My rent is 750. I've almost paid my rent for next month if I get this job. And I would say, all right, I'm going to go ahead and and do it with an accent the way that they like. It never felt great. And by the way, the, I'm, I'm giving you the abridged version. There were probably a hundred stories like this. I didn't always decide to do it. Sometimes I would say no. Sometimes I would say yes. A lot of it also came down to, I, I after, after about four years of living in LA, I finally found an agent who was willing to represent me. And she had some really great advice where she would kind of sit me down and say, just from a business perspective, I can't pitch you for things if you don't have credits on your resume. And the only way that somebody who looks like you is going to be able to start getting credits on your resume is by doing things that you probably don't want to do, roles that you probably don't want to take, things that you find stereotypical or blatantly racist. But the hope is that you can slowly build a, a career. In that respect, if you take the, the racism out of it, um, in that respect, it's not unlike many other professions, right? Where you start for years, you're maybe doing things that you know you're overqualified to be doing, but you do them in the hopes that your your, your passion project or your dream job is five or seven years away. But I got to tell you, when when you're walking out of those things, being told things that are racially or ethnically kind of degrading, and you just think of yourself as this American kid who grew up in New Jersey, it can be very confusing for sure. All of us, when we go into our careers and in our work lives, we enter systems that we didn't create, that we are mm -hmm. matriculating into. And we're faced with the decision constantly, do I continue to uphold the values of the system that I live in? Or do I attempt to break the system and change those values? And there's a little bit of a catch-22 to it, right? Because without power, we can do very little. Mm -hmm. And in order to gain power in any system, we sometimes have to play by rules that we didn't make, right? Yes. And that, to me, feels like the story of your book, if you're looking for a good summary. <laughs> it 100% it is. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to tell those stories is because for both the entertainment industry and politics, I, I felt like my path and my passion was in infiltrating those systems to make them better for the reasons that I love. I love storytelling. I love film. I love making people laugh. The idea that somebody who looks like me isn't allowed to do that didn't sit well with me. And there were times, to be sure, where the right course of action would have been a form of protest or a form of saying, I will not do this. And there were other times where I thought, perhaps the best course of action for me right now is to keep quiet and do what I have to do to infiltrate that system and change it from the inside when I write my own shows, when I produce my own movies, which thankfully now, you know, the, the last 10 years of my life I've had the chance to do. It's not that different in politics, except in politics, it's sort of a wider berth where you think, at what point do you put on a suit 
call somebody sir or ma'am and walk into a senator's office and have a meeting? And when do you stand outside with 50 of your friends screaming and shouting and getting arrested? What's going to have the biggest impact when and why? There's no cut and dry answer to that, but you're absolutely right. Is it the idea of how to change systems and at what point you figure out the calculus of how to best change that system has always fascinated me because it comes, in my case, comes from a place of love. The the idea of leadership, the idea that our country belongs to all of us, the idea that we should be able to turn on the TV and laugh with families who look like ours or characters who have had life experiences like ours. That's really important to me. That's what I love about where we live. By 2007, Cal had done a ton of TV and some movies. He'd made it. He was a series regular on a show called House. He played a doctor. One day, his co-star, Olivia Wilde, invited him to a political event. A senator from Illinois was testing out an unlikely run for president. I was like, no, I'm good. I don't really want to I don't really want to go see a politician speak. And she just sort of looked at me. She's like, what are you talking about? You read the New York Times every day and you insufferably bring the economist to set once a week and like read it in your little folding chair. I That's mean, not on, an LA you. thing to do, from <laughs> what I not, understand. Yeah, right. Sorry, I should be clear to listeners. No, it is not an LA thing to do. Uh, and and she's like, of course you want to come to this. Cal still wasn't sure. He'd been to some political events in the past, and he didn't love the inconsistency he'd experienced. But he knew he'd have a chance to talk to this senator, Barack Obama. So he agreed. Olivia's event was on like a, uh, I think it was a Saturday evening. And that Saturday morning, Obama was doing some fancy fundraiser in Malibu that uh, a guy named Eli Addy, who was one of our uh, screenwriters on House, who had been Al Gore's former speechwriter, got wind of this. And he, he said, hey, you should, you should go to that event if you really want to see what politicians are like in front of their donors. So I go to this event in Malibu. I did not pay all the money to go in. I paid like 25 bucks, which allowed you to just stand in the back of the room. Uh, right. and not eat any of the fancy food and not partake in any of the fancy Malibu nonsense. I have to jump in here. Cal was a successful actor at this point, but these kinds of events, I covered them as a journalist, and it's just a lot. You're in a stranger's house, something more beautiful than most anyone, even a lot of TV stars, might ever own in a lifetime. Excess is the name of the game. And whichever politician the event is for, they need those very wealthy people to write checks before the night is over. I drove my little car, which was a Prius at the time. I live in New York now, so I don't have a car. But I, when I was living in LA, I had, drove this little Prius, and I passed this house, which was on the Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu. And I just see a valet line of all these fancy cars and Hummers and BMWs and all this nonsense. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm just. I, I don't like valet parking. I'm just going to find a spot." So I find a spot like three quarters of a mile up the Pacific Coast Highway. I walk to this event. I pass the line of Hummers and the fancy cars. I walk in, the people who are at the seated, like $2,000 a plate breakfast look very, very fancy. They're very well dressed. I think I probably look the way I do now. I was in like a hoodie and jeans. And I stood in the back and I'm people watching and I'm just like, oh shit, there's Eddie Murphy. Oh shit, there's like people who I recognize, a lot of people in suits who I probably saw at meetings. And Obama walks in, he starts making his speech and he stops when he gets to the part about the environment and he looks around the room and he he says, "Um, hey... I just got to ask, who drove a Hummer here today? You know, we're talking about climate change. Who, who drove a Hummer? Hummers get terrible gas mileage. Everybody sort of laughs. It was like a, it was a rich people laugh. Like, like they, they were kind of like, <laughs> yeah, like a little bit very gleeful the way that like, I guess on the one hand, the way that friends make fun of each other, but also just, it was a very wealthy laugh. There's a wealthy laugh that spread through the crowd. Yep. Uh, and he, he kept on it. He goes, uh, I'm actually not kidding. 
who I saw a lot of Hummers parked outside. Who drove a Hummer to a Barack Obama event? And then the room gets really quiet, and he's like, he's milking this. Like he clearly knew exactly what he was doing. And it's pin drop silence, and he goes, um, "The point I'm trying to make is that if you can spend two thousand dollars to have breakfast with me when I'm forty points down in the polls in a Democratic primary." you can probably buy something other than a Hummer. You know, you can buy a hybrid car. You can in- invest in technology of the future so that the price of that technology can come down over time and everyone can afford it. And I just stood there in the back of the room completely floored. I mean, my, my poli-sci 101 class at UCLA, one of the first things they tell you is that the relationship between donors and politicians is such that politicians will will never never shit on their donors in a in a donor space, right? This was a fundraising event. There was no press there. There were no cameras there. And I walked away just being really floored that there would be any candidate, especially one running for president, who would speak this way to their to, to their donors. And he did it in a way that, of course, was disarming because he has a, a skill for, for that kind of conversation. But it was poignant. And it was, it was very, uh, it was obvious to, to everybody who was there what he was talking about. At this point, Cal, who, remember, he did not want to go to a political event in the first place, Cal was in, like volunteered for the Iowa primary campaign in. A few days of volunteering turned into this multi-week volunteer jaunt. That turned into visiting 26 states on behalf of the campaign. Cal worked on policy, too. Arts policy, arts education, cultural diplomacy, youth outreach. And then, that fall, Barack Obama was elected the 44th president of the United States. Now, we're going to take a quick break here, but stick around, because when we come back, Cal makes a key mistake in applying for a dream job. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan... TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. So Barack Obama was about to become the U.S. president and Cal was still in so much so that he decided to apply for a job in the administration. And this bit, well, this is something that I think anyone who's applied for a job in the last decade or so will relate to. He goes on the website, he puts in his resume, and then nobody calls. It's radio silence. I'm especially excited to talk to you about this because I feel like you and and knowing what I know of of the community of listeners, this is something that I, I know I'm not the only one who still, by the way, struggles with this concept of What's the right process to to make it known that you're interested in a job? And then also the idea of in a field where there might be some nepotism happening, what right do I have to also take advantage of such nepotism? Um, Which, by the way, I think um, I would also trace back to the way that you grew up or the, the sense of like where you belong in the world. The idea that like, well, sure, I know people, but I I would never be one of those people who called those people for a favor. Totally. Exactly. Right. And I remain bad at this. This guy becomes president and I I kind of think, well, you know, do I want to be one of these people who just told everybody else what they should do? Or is there an opportunity to maybe serve my country here? And all of the people who I'd worked with on Obama's campaign were like me in the sense that they had taken 
little leaves of absence to volunteer from whatever their respective jobs were. It was a very down-to-earth crowd. There were people who didn't feel like they were political insiders. And they were all applying for these jobs on a website that the Obama campaign had, had set up called change.gov. And I, I didn't know at the time that that a lot of them were also calling in favors for people that they directly worked for. So if you worked for a senior advisor, you fill out the application, but you also tell that senior advisor so they can internally flag your application, right? So I'm sitting here going, I'm, I'm already self-conscious because I, I already had a career in the public eye that when you're working on a presidential campaign, it's the opposite, like keep your head down, do good work. So I'm thinking like, well, I guess if I apply on change.gov and if I'm actually qualified to work at the White House, then somebody will find that out and they'll call me. But I certainly don't want to call somebody and make it seem like I feel like I'm somehow entitled to a job because I'm an actor. And so I filled out this very detailed form on change.gov and I hit submit and nobody called. And then time sort of goes by and I'm hearing of other people getting jobs. But wait, and, just to just to stop a yeah, second. And this yeah, like yeah. like so here you are at this moment in your life. You you still are with house. You're still playing a doctor mm-hmm. with house. You've taken some time off to be able to go and do this campaigning, but that job still exists. Yeah. Like the jobs that you're applying for, this idea of serving your country. Um, I'm just curious, like, what does it mean to you to serve your country? I feel like there people do this often, but we do it in, in different ways. So a lot of people will volunteer with, I mean, really starting out in college or pre-college, they'll, they'll volunteer for something with their fraternity or their church group or their, their synagogue or, you know, a, any sort of number of places that they feel like that's how they're giving back to their community. And we don't often hear about it and you don't often hear about it because, you know, if you look at, what ends up on the news, except for maybe one feel-good human interest segment at the end of every news broadcast, it doesn't. It's not sexy enough or vitriolic enough for anybody to take notice. But that doesn't mean that people aren't doing it. And in my case, obviously things are different if you're on a TV show and there's that that spotlight on you. But the reason that I initially wanted to do it goes all the way back to my grandparents. My grandparents uh, marched with Gandhi in the Indian independence movement. And of course, as a kid, I had no idea what a big deal that was. They were just, I would hear these stories that grandma and, grandma and grandpa would tell us, uh, you know, while they're coercing us into finishing our vegetables in third grade, you know. And, right. and as I got older, I realized, oh, wow, okay, what they're talking about is the entire, uh, the entire independence movement and, and, a, and a framework that Dr. King then adopted of nonviolent civil disobedience and, and how that affects us as Americans. And my mind was blown, but it also, it was less about politics and more about just this family value that existed in our household, that you should do the right thing if, if you feel strongly about it, whatever that looks like to you. Well, so you put in your resume cold after this <laughs> I did. hugely emotional journey that you've been on in the campaign. <sighs> And surprise, surprise, just like when you submit your resume cold online anywhere, nobody called. Nobody um, called. And that's how you learned a very important lesson about how you get a job. What is that lesson? That lesson is that you do need to advocate for yourself. And, uh, and especially if you need, to, you need to let people know. So the only person who I had told, I told my manager, who I'm still with, my, my Hollywood manager, my acting manager, that, hey, I applied for this uh, this job at the White House. I just thought if I'm qualified, it would be amazing to have the chance to take a sabbatical for a year and serve our country. And uh, you know, as, as the son of immigrants, having a chance to do it at all, but especially for the first black president of the United States, 
it, it would just mean a lot. And he said, oh, yeah, no, that's great. Good for you. That's cool. You know, no real, I think, understanding of would he actually do this? Right. Uh, and, and to your to your earlier point, I also had a contract. I mean, a, a very privileged, rare opportunity to be on this TV show house, right? So it's not like I could just you don't get to just resign from jobs like that. It's a whole it's a whole thing. There's intellectual property involved. So um, <laughs> so I didn't know how any of this worked. I was just being very naive, and frankly, as I hear myself and I as I heard myself when I was writing these chapters in the book, I just kept thinking, "Man, Cal, you are so stupid." Like you just, you're so naive. I'm not saying you have to behave like an HBS grad and just schmooze your way around every dinner, but for the love of God, at least have a little more self-respect and dedication for what you want to do. So, so cut to three months later during the inauguration, it was, I think the day before the inauguration and I had been invited to, uh, to be a small part of the, uh, of the Obama Biden inaugural concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And one of the perks of that was you could bring your family and a, a friend or two backstage to say hi to the incoming first family. And so I brought my parents and my brother and 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 Dan, my my manager, the the only other person who I had told that I had applied for this job. And I didn't think anything of it. We're all shaking hands. The the first new first lady comes over and Mrs. Obama says, uh, I'd never met her before. She goes, oh, Cal, thank you so much for all your work on the campaign. Uh, you know, I hope you stay in touch and continue to help us out. And I just said, yeah, no, I would love to. That's so great. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Just thinking it's one of those like little schmoozy in passing conversations. And my manager, who um, for for listeners who are fans of the show Entourage on HBO, the reason I love my, my, my manager is he is like all of the characters from Entourage in one, but also <laughs> with a heart of gold. So like he's the most simultaneously the most ridiculous and the sweetest person that you'll ever meet. And he just blurts out, well, you know, Mrs. Obama, he applied for a job. And I just, <laughs> my face turned red and I looked at him and I was like, dude, dude, no, 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 no. Don't, this is not the time to do that. And she goes, what, what do you mean you applied for a job? And he goes, well, you're, you're telling him to stay in touch and help out. He, he applied for a job. And Mrs. Obama looks at me and says, who did you apply with? And what job? And that's when it kind of dawned on me that, oh, you idiot, you applied on change.gov for a White House job. And my manager says he applied on the website for a White House job. And the look that she gave me is not a look that I think you usually see on Michelle Obama's face. It was this this look that unmistakably just said, are you really that fucking stupid? <laughs> <laughs> and and it was quizzical. And she, she summoned... Uh, Mr. Obama over and we had a conversation. He, he was also confused and said, what do you mean you applied? Who did you apply with? And I realized, you know, that th this was my big error, that whether somebody's about to be the incoming president or not is actually not the point of the story. The point of the story is when somebody who you've diligently worked for, for, for 18 months in a variety of capacities in a way that has made you and, and others like you more and more trusted as that brand grows bigger and bigger, if you want to continue working for that person once they've achieved whatever the, the company wants to achieve in that iteration, isn't it kind of your responsibility to make it known because you are valued in the work that you've done up until that point? And it almost is disrespectful in a way to just fill out an application on a website and not advocate for the ideals that you actually believe in that you've been working towards those those first 18 months. That was the first time that clicked with me, where I thought I was doing the right thing and, and not shaking things up and keeping my head down. But the reality was the way it was perceived was 
not because I'm an actor or anything, but because I've been working with them for that long. If I was serious about it, I should have made it known in a serious professional way. So anyway, that opened up the door towards, hey, let's actually have this conversation and see if there's a role for you in the incoming administration. It feels so personal to me. Before I worked at LinkedIn, I knew the CEO who was then a guy named Jeff Wiener. I had a lot of respect for him. I would even call him a friend. I had covered technology for Fortune magazine and Wired magazine for a decade and a half and, and covered his entire career from before he was at LinkedIn when he was a young gun at Yahoo. And then I worked here and he was the boss's boss and I suddenly got uh, like like sort of caught up in ceremony and I felt very small within that system. Mm -hmm. And the idea of just reaching out to him casually to be like, hey, dude, let me tell you what's going on. That was like totally off the radar. And it actually took a, a push from a mentor to to stay in touch with him, to reach out, to, to have the coffee. And it was the same, the same sort of sense of caution that you're suggesting. Like, well, that, those aren't the rules. I don't I don't want to overstep. I want to I want to respect the system as it exists. I, yes. you know, I don't know exactly. I just know that if I if I channel my inner white man, it becomes a lot easier for me to just uh, <laughs> reach out and make the call. It, it's the, channeling that is also so interesting to me. There's, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this, but it's almost like the the types of of people who list all of their accolades on their email signature file, and the signature file then ends up being longer than the message of the email itself. Yes. And to me, that has always screamed insecurity, right? That's That has screamed, don't hire that person or don't even set up a meeting with that person because they're trying so hard to prove themselves to be something that has nothing to do with the actual work or the task. And right. I, I think being so uber conscious of never wanting to be one of those people, I, I think it's also easy to lose sight of, of where that middle ground lies, where and how you actually do advocate for yourself without being the inner white man with the million accolades on their email signature file. Cal did end up getting that White House job. For two years, he served as the Associate Director of Public Engagement in Intergovernmental Affairs. He got to serve his country just as he had felt so strongly he must do. And then, well, then Cal resumed his first passion. He went back to TV. At one point, his passions converged, and he both acted in and consulted for the designated survivor. I'm telling you, that show's great. So I asked him what it was like to consult for a fake White House after working in the real one. As I read the script, I kind of thought, oh, you know what? This feels like this feels different enough. Like it's almost as if um, if I was uh, a real airline captain and then got a job doing an off-Broadway play in which I played an airline mechanic. Like yeah. it, it almost felt like that. Like, you know, you know about the world. But the actual job itself is so different that it is enough of a challenge and, and uh, bringing these characters to life is, is, uh, is helpful artistically. The thing that was interesting in those three seasons, I think we went through four or five showrunners, including the pilot, and each one had a different take on, uh, on the world of the White House. And I, um, I was also a consultant on that show. And your job, or at least my job as a consultant, was not to... Um, advocate for a particular storyline. That was what the writers would do. But my job was to tell people whether or not certain things would happen in real life. And depending on the showrunner, I think three out of the five showrunners wanted to do things that wouldn't actually happen in real life because they thought that was really cool. And then the other two, uh, including our, our last when we were on Netflix uh, and the original writer of the show, uh, David Guggenheim, they both felt that uh, grounding it in reality would be the strongest choice, which I tend to agree with. So um, 
I'm catching up with you in the middle of your career. So things have changed a lot in entertainment, um, specifically around being an Indian American man working in entertainment, but also yeah. things have not changed nearly as much. And I think your your last stories about your recent series on NBC really illustrated that. Where do you go from here? What do you want to crack next? So uh, I, I love what I do. You know, being an actor and a content creator is my first love. I just love making people laugh. I love um, bringing an audience into to stories that they may have never experienced before, whether that's through writing or short form content or obviously film, film or TV. So I would love to just continue doing more of it. And I think you're right. You know, there's still a long way to go in our industry. But one of the one of the biggest silver linings that's been so inspiring to me is seeing how audience driven a lot of these changes are and how technology driven a lot of these changes are. So, you know, network TV will always be a little slow to catch up, but they're trying, I think, as slow as things move and as frustrating as it can be for many of us, they are trying. And I think that's a, that, that's a good thing. One of the biggest reasons I think they're trying is because of what the streamers are doing. You look at Hulu and Netflix and Amazon, and they're able to cast shows and create content almost without regard to race, ethnicity, sexuality, economics, et cetera. I'm getting that same sense from, um, from social media, from podcasts, from places where audiences can go for the content that we're traditionally not used to getting. And so that makes me just really hopeful and really excited about the different ways that you can entertain people. That was Cal Penn. His book, You Can't Be Serious, is available now. This week on Hello Monday Office Hours, Sarah and Michaela are talking about giving back. If you could take two years out of your life to give back to your community, your country, the world, what would you do? We'll go live like we always do at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, and we'll discuss. To join the conversation, meet us on the LinkedIn news page or send us an email at hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you the link. And if you like the show, rate and review us. It genuinely helps so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Ali McPherson and Taisha Henry. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Ariando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Gianna Prudente help us make important connections. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We're back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I have an honorary doctorate now. The reason I bring that up is I've debated now with my friends, like, am I allowed to put doctor on my driver's license? Like, is that a thing I can do? Cal, let's just say this. If I were on okay. an airplane and I passed out, I was choking, yeah. and somebody said, is there a doctor on this plane? I hope you would yeah. not stand up. I would not stand up, but I would, after the person was safe, I would I would just sort of show them my ID and be like, I, I have an honorary doctorate of arts and letters. <laughs> so if you want me to write a story about what happened to you today, I would be happy to do that and portray you right. in the film adaptation.